0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mike Masnick, founder and CEO of the Copia Institute and editor of the TechDirt Blog. We will discuss his work on the economics of abundance and the internet, including his new project, Newly Finite Themes. So welcome to the show, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Man, I'm super excited to have you on. I'm a huge fan of TechDirt. I'm a huge fan of all your work, and it's been hugely influential on my own thinking uh, in the past, and I think even more so going forward. So I'm really psyched (laughs) to talk to you about this because it's exactly the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in. I know a lot of people are really confused about it, and we're going to get to NFTs and what they are (laughs) and figure it out in a little bit. But I thought maybe you could start by just kind of taking a big picture of you uh, and helping us kind of through the path that got you where you're at today, which I think is way ahead of a lot of other people. Um, and and tell us a little bit of what you mean by the economics of abundance and, you know, what that means in relation to digital technology and, and the internet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out sort of where to go back in the, in the path of <laughs> that led me here because I, I could go back really far uh, and, and I'll even go I'll, so I'll go back to the time when I was in business school in the the mid 1990s uh, and was getting the dreaded evil MBA degree um, and I had um, I had a couple of professors who were really quite visionary. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about one of them it was professor of economics, Alan McAdams, um, who had a, had a bizarre history on his own, which was he was, uh, an economist for the Nixon White House. Uh, and then in the eighties was like the, uh, the government's expert witness in the IBM antitrust trial. Um, and so had all of this sort of interesting history himself. And in the nineties had sort of come up with this framework for thinking about um, the digital world and innovation in the digital world. And, you know, and in the 90s, when I was in business school with him, he was um, he was technically teaching a class on management, management consulting. Uh, And so, like, you know, all these business school kids wanted to go into management consulting and make lots of money. So they would all take his class. And he would come in, and he was in his 70s at the time and looked older, and he would come in in a, in a suit and a tie and sneakers, and, and half the time his sneakers were untied, and he was just sort of unkempt. And, and he had these um, these ideas, and he would present this idea, of what he would refer to as the university model. And he had this vision of the world that of how innovation in the digital world worked, which he called the university model, and he was not good at explaining it. and all these kids were sitting in class going, what the hell is this? I just want to learn how to go tell P you know, like how to sell more soap. And you're talking to me about like, you know, digital technologies and, and all of this stuff. And like, I think I was like that, like maybe the first two weeks of the class. And then I was sitting down and I was thinking about it. And I had always been sort of really into technology and, early adopter of the internet and just loved everything about it and i was kind of working through all the stuff that he was talking about and all of a sudden like a light bulb went off and i was like oh he's right like he he gets it he's terrible at explaining it but he's got a really good point about like the way that that digital technologies work and the nature of like sort of how widely available things are And when information is widely available that changes things and all of the stuff that we think about in traditional economics around like scarcity and how economics is the, you know, the, uh, you know, understanding, uh, you know, resource allocation in the presence of scarcity doesn't necessarily apply when you're talking about information and information is widely, abundantly, infinitely available. And so suddenly you have to look at it in a totally different way. And historically, the way that we've looked at it is by looking at abundance, freaking out about it and saying like, we need to put some sort of like weird artificial scarcity on it. So it gets back into this model that we understand of scarcity and property rights and things like that. And that's where, you know, intellectual property comes in and this idea of copyright and locking it down and taking something that is freely available that, you know, Thomas Jefferson has the famous, you know, candle analogy that he uses where you can, you know, take the candle and light another's and you don't, you're not, you know, losing any of it. And all that applies to information, but because people sort of freak out about it, they put these these restrictions on it. And so that sort of sent me down this path of, like, constantly trying to think through, like, the economics of information and of, you know, of, of the digital age are somewhat different. They're not completely divorced from the economics that, that we learned, you know, back in Econ 101, but you have to apply it in a slightly different way and you begin to look at things differently. And so that sort of, you know, started me down the path in, in the 90s of like exploring copyright and uh and and digital economics and, and trying to understand all this stuff and, and realizing very early on that like, you know, I was pretty sure that the recording industry, which was the first one that sort of freaked out about these things, was wrong. <laughs> you know, that they were they were so focused on how like the internet is evil and bad and all the artists are going to lose every ability to make any money and the entire industry is going to suck, um, that I said, you know, that doesn't feel right. Nothing about that seems to make sense. And while they're complaining about all this, I'm seeing all of these, you know, musicians who are suddenly freed from the shackles of like, having to get a, a major record label deal in order to become a musician that they're able to just record themselves. They're able to sell it themselves. They're able to do all of these things themselves and sort of bypass what had formerly been gatekeepers. And so, you know, I sort of in the early two thousands, as I was sort of building up tech, I sort of kept kind of trying to work through this model of, you know, what is, what are the economics here and, and how does it work? And, Moving away from like, if we're only looking at economics in a world of scarcity, you know, what happens when you put abundance into it? And so that's where, you know, I I wrote a series across, I forget actually now which years it was, like 2005, 2006, maybe 2007 or so, where I sort of tried to lay out all of these theories and recognizing like where you have abundance, such as digital files or, or, you know, something that is infinitely copyable. There there are new scarcities, but it's not the artificial scarcities of copyright. It's scarcities like time and attention, right? And now, obviously, these days, everybody is well aware of like the idea of like the marketplace for attention, right? That's that is what what Google and Facebook and and you know most of the internet is is totally focused on. But they recognize like, okay, there's this scarcity, and the 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 sort of key to me was that. At the intersection of that abundance or that infinitely available good uh, and the new scarcity, there's always some sort of friction point where those two connect. And if you know what's going on, that's where you can make some money. And so that's, I think, what Facebook and Google have done, which is they recognize like we can capture some element of that attention and we can sell it to advertisers um, for for better or for worse. I'm not I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. In fact, I, I have lots of problems with the, the models that they have. But, you know, that's where, where the sort of economic flow went. And over the years, I sort of continue to follow that and sort of think through the logic of how does that play out in other areas and how every time there's some sort of new abundance, that there is also some sort of scarcity that goes along with it. And the real trick and the real, you know, compelling thing is like, can you find that scarcity? Can you figure out how to, you know, where is that friction point? And then, you know, can, can you build a business model around it? That's separate again, from like the moral questions of like, is that business model good? Are you destroying the world or or what? But just from a purely economics understanding point, um, I, I think that's that's been the key. And that's, so that's a lot of the the focus of of my work in the sort of 15 years since then, since I wrote that.
0: So one distinction that you made or kind of an evolution in your own thought you described was from the idea of an economics of abundance to like an economics of infinite ability. Yeah. I wonder if you could say a little something about what the difference between those two is and why you think it matters in this context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's important because I think most people do talk about abundance versus scarcity. Like that's the sort of natural, you know, opposite of scarcity is abundance. Um, but the thing with, with you know, digital goods um, in particular is that like abundance doesn't really capture what it is that they are, right? It, they are infinitely available. Like you can co- continue to copy it at no cost, right? Abundance means you have a massive pile, but you are still, you know, you know if you have just like i'm blanking on what it is but like bushels and bushels of apples right like you can have an abundance of apples but every time you eat an apple you are still taking one apple away with with digital that's not like your consumption of it does not diminish mine in any way at all and in fact you can always make more copies without any any realistic cost um and so in that sense it's it's infinite and once you get to the point that it's infinite you know you sort of have the reverse of of zero, right? <laughs> like, you know, I, I sort of, yeah, and there's some dispute, and I'm not going to get into like the mathematical disputes. But like, you know, I, I sort of see zero and, and infinity as as sort of the flip sides. Um, and, you know, part of my thinking in, in getting into this originally was like, I had completely randomly in a used bookstore, found two different books about zero, and the history of zero. And I was reading these books, and they were fascinating. And like, nobody ever You know, unless you've read these books or really want to get into it, like you you don't think about the history of zero. Zero is just there, right? It's nothing. It's between one and negative one, right? And it's sort of like that that boundary between positive and negative. But like, what was fascinating was how difficult the concept of zero was for multiple civilizations. Right? They would like, you know, there were all sorts of civilizations that were sort of trying to to put in place mathematical concepts, and they didn't have the concept of zero, and they couldn't figure it out, and it just like completely was upsetting to them that there might be a zero and they just sort of completely stayed away from it. And so you have, you know, centuries of societies who don't have zero as, as part of their society. And it's only like, and then when it came out, it was like really controversial. So you have societies like experimenting with the use of zero and it's like a huge controversy and zero comes from the devil. I mean, there's like all of these crazy things. And the same is kind of true for, for, for infinity, right? This concept of like, Something that is infinite is mind blowing and and really difficult to wrap your head around, right? You can understand very large number, but infinite is not very large number. It's infinite. It's beyond that. It is un you know unending, uh, and and that's really really difficult to impossible to sort of comprehend, and so we have these ideas in math. Like people recognize like a divide by zero problem, right? If you try and divide by zero your calculator breaks, right? It pops up an error, right? You can't divide by zero. And so to me, like the infinite situation is kind of the reverse of that. Like people are looking at things that are infinite and they're used to applying formulas that work on, on you know, whole numbers. And you're suddenly saying like, well, let's throw this infinite value into this formula and just like divide by zero, it breaks. And so the calculator, the sort of economics framework, economic frameworks and models that people use to judge these things breaks. And when it breaks, they freak out and then they they sort of have to force the infinity into this model that they've been using and that to them works. And that's where you get things like like you know uh you know copyright and, and things like that to sort of put these limits on it and to take something that's infinite and bound it and put a fence around it and say like okay now it's bounded Now there's a limit. Now I can put it into my model and make it work. And so I think that it is important to say, like, just like zero exists in the world and we have, you know, figured out how to put zero into mathematical equations and have an impact and figure out what do you do when that happens. We have to do the same for economic models and and infinite goods. And so, you know, I I think that is it is a really important distinction and and I don't always make it. So I'm glad that you sort of brought up the difference between just sort of pure abundance and, and infinite.
0: Well, so shifting uh, subjects of conversation slightly, uh, there's another strand of your work, which I think is different but related to what we've already been talking about around the kind of distinction between uh, protocols and platforms. So, Mm -hmm. for kind of non Text-oriented people. I wonder if you could kind of like just briefly lay out what that distinction is, uh, what it sort of looked like historically, and and why you think it matters going forward in terms of thinking about the kind of structure and um, regulation of the of the internet.
1: Yeah. So this this was something that that. And 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 I should be clear, like on all of this stuff, like my thinking is heavily influenced by lots of other people. I am not coming up with any of this stuff, just sort of, you know, out of nowhere. But but you know, when it came to the protocols and platforms, you know, around 2014, 2015, that was when people first started to have like significant and serious concerns about specifically about like questions about content moderation. And I, I actually remember specifically you know, before everybody was concerned about Facebook, there were concerns about Reddit and sort of like there were these like very questionable Reddit groups and everyone was sort of trying to figure out like, Oh, what should Reddit do? And Reddit kind of struggled and went back and forth and made a bunch of decisions that people didn't like. And then Twitter sort of jumped into the same, same space, even though it's like much smaller than Facebook. I think a lot of the initial concerns were both about, you know, sort of bad people on Twitter and Reddit and what should they do? And I was trying to like, I was sort of struggling with what should they do? And I come from a, you know, a, a, uh traditionally you know optimistic about the internet <laughs> standpoint where i you know i believe in the promise of the the open internet and this idea that it would help enable lots of people to have voices and that it would you know create all of these these opportunities um and i started to say well this is weird this is different than than what what we were thinking about originally and this is different than the the world that we were sort of promised originally and wh- where where did it change where did it shift and so you know, part of what I was saying is like, I kind of went back to like the early days on the internet and you know, I would use Usenet and, and be in different groups and, and um, you know, and, and different tools would come around every few years. So like when I got on the internet, it was before the World Wide web existed, but there was something called gopher and I would use gopher to like check the weather every morning. And it was like this little text-based thing and you go down these menus and then the World Wide web came along and I was like, you know, and something will come along after the World Wide web that'll probably last a few years. And then there'll be whatever, you know, comes after that. Um, But, you know, what what I started to realize, like, you know, those early technologies, the early things that I used, they were not owned by a, a specific company, right? The World Wide Web was not owned by a company. Email itself was not owned by a company. You would have an email provider. But you know, you could communicate like just, you know, my first email account was from my university when I was in college, uh, but I could email anyone else, you know, it didn't, they didn't have to also go to my college to, to, to be able to, to communicate with them. And similarly, the Usenet account that I was, I was using at the time, You know, that wasn't owned by anyone. My college provided a Usenet server so I could pop in, but I was like talking to people all around the world, uh, that were accessing Usenet, some through other universities, some through private, you know, uh, companies that were providing Usenet services. And I was like, that's a really different world than the one that we're suddenly in, you know, and Usenet and Reddit are, are remarkably similar, um, and uh, in, in concept you know you have sort of like different groups and different communities and they're sort of you know moderated in their own ways within those groups um and yet reddit is wholly controlled by reddit inc you know this this corporation based in san francisco whereas usenet wasn't like that and so that's where i began to to look at what are the differences and and realize that like You know, the early internet technologies were not owned by a corporation. They were protocols. They were, you know, we are going to map out how this works and anyone can implement it on their own and connect. And so all of these things are interoperable and they connect and different server providers might build in different features or they might say, you know, Uh, I'm operating a Usenet server, and I don't like these news groups, so I am not going to allow access to them. But there was this sort of competitive element to it, too, where you had different things. And so if you were uncomfortable with that, you could find a different provider. Or if you wanted to support a provider that was providing better services, you could support that different provider. But you would still have access to most of the same content, and you could still communicate across those different instances. And that's different with the services that we have today, whether it's Reddit or Twitter or Facebook or or whoever, that those all became sort of siloed platforms owned and operated by those companies. And that's that's a really different kind of Internet. And I don't like I, I understand how that came about In in part of doing that, like it goes back to the other stuff that I was talking about, which is that they recognized, you know, the the. Uh, scarcity of attention and the best way to monetize that was to sort of have control and to suck up all this data and be able to, to sell that attention to advertisers in a better way. And so that is a natural, uh, you know, progression, but not necessarily a good one. So, so I ended up writing this idea that like maybe we would be better off if we started to think back towards this world of, of protocols and could we move these giant companies, these sort of siloed info, you know information uh, you know collectors into something that where you know it's not just one big company but it is a protocol that different different entities, whether they're corporations or individuals or nonprofits or whatever, could implement their own things people could continue to communicate you would have more interoperability you would have more ability for people to to communicate across these different things, um, you could also implement a lot of different approaches to innovation that way. You wouldn't be, so if we're talking about Reddit or Twitter, you wouldn't be reliant on whether or not Twitter wants to implement an edit function, uh, which seems to be the number one demand there. You know, different implement implementations could say like, we're going to implement this and you could get, sort of competitive innovation at that level, right? So the the underlying protocol could be set in place and say, everybody's going to use this sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, like, you know, Reddit protocol or Twitter protocol, but different people could implement it. And suddenly you're building a competitive level, a competitive layer above that, where, you know, you could have a different interface. You could have different... Filters. You could have different content moderation tools. You could have, you know, somebody wants to do the one where it's all wide open, and you have to sit through abuse and harassment and spam. Like, go for it, and we'll see in the marketplace whether or not anyone actually wants to use that that platform or not. And so, it just struck me as a as a really interesting approach to all of this. Um, and then the Knight Institute at Columbia had asked me to write a paper on it. Um, and so in 2018, I spent a, a bunch of time kind of working through this paper on like, what what is what does a protocol world look like as, a, as opposed to a platform world? And also, you know, I, I put the sort of seeds of it into, I didn't go that deep into it, but like why internet companies actually might want to embrace it, even though very clearly it would be giving up some significant level of control and that sort of, you know that point. Uh, uh, you know why everything headed in this direction in the first place, which was the ability to collect all that data to then sell to advertisers. And so I wrote this paper that sort of tried to push people to think through like why that world might be better for everyone for a variety of reasons: better for users, gives them more control; um, better for competition because it allows for new entrants and and the easy switching between different different systems, um, and even. And this is definitely the hardest sell better for the companies themselves, you know, because they wouldn't be facing, you know, having to to go in front of Congress every six months and say, like, you know, yes, I understand bad people use my platform. We're doing our best, you know, and, 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 you know, in Facebook's case, having to hire 50,000 different content moderators and then making them suffer through seeing the worst of humanity every day. Um, and so it struck me as like, maybe this is a better approach. And so I wrote that paper, um, Got very little attention for a few months, and then then Jack Dorsey saw it uh, at Twitter, and so then Twitter was like, "Oh yeah, this is a good idea. We're going to do this." <laughs> uh, and so now they're they're working on a project which is somewhat inspired by my paper, not just my paper, but a couple of few other things also. Um, and so that's an experiment that's kind of interesting that that I'm sort of paying attention to as well.
0: Well, so shifting gears once again, in the last like year or so, suddenly everyone's talking about non-fungible tokens or NFTs. So I wonder if to the, to the best of your ability, you can briefly tell listeners exactly what an NFT is and how the market for them works. But also, and I think in a lot of ways, more importantly, how they fit into the perspectives you've been sharing about the economics of abundance or infinite um, infinity and this kind of platform protocol distinction.
1: Yeah. And, and to be honest, like, I'm not sure anyone can give a really good description of what NFTs are and I'm still figuring out and sort of trying to understand it. But, you know, the idea is like, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, a digital product is infinitely copyable, infinitely available. Someone getting another copy does not diminish the the copy that anyone else has. Um, but like with the, um, with the introduction of cryptocurrencies, there, there is this interesting element to it, which is that it has built in a kind of scarcity. Now it's a little bit different, and this is where it gets complex and we don't need to go into all of the different weeds, but it has created a digital scarcity. And that's interesting. It's potentially concerning, but it's potentially powerful. And so there's this weird sort of thought process and and one of the earliest things I saw like when cryptocurrency was first sort of catching on was there were people who were saying, "Oh, you know what this is good for is DRM." Like because we're building in this like digital like digital scarcity. So if we just mu- you know move music to the blockchain, like suddenly we'll have great DRM. And I was like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> like that's not going to work. Be, and, and, you know, there was sort of a, you know, and, and I was sort of trying to, and I'm, I can't remember if I ever actually wrote this or just thought it, you know, but, but I, I, I'd gone through this thought process where I was like, you know, I think there's something interesting in this idea of creating digital scarcity because it is a new scarcity. Um, but how you implement it and what you do with it is really important. And something like DRM doesn't work because the only way that a digital scarcity works is if people actually want it. like if there's a val- a legitimate value to it, and DRM is not that, right DRM nobody wants, right It just pisses off people. The only people who want it are the people sort of you know offering the products and and, and that's no good because you need the, the, the actual consumers of it to want it. And so using cryptocurrency as a DRM, doesn't make sense to me, but the the NFT space sort of came at it from a different angle, and suddenly I'm like, oh wait, there's something interesting here. There's a lot that's garbage, and like I think that's really important. Like I am not a uh, uh, you know there are these people out there who just are like pure NFT boosters and are just like, whoo, this is amazing, and the whole world is going to change, and and people want to own digital files, and it's like I don't I don't think that they really do. Like, I don't think the excitement is in owning a digital file. I think there's something else there. And that's really what, what I what I want to explore and try and understand, which is that this is the, this is a way of, of putting in place a real scarcity that people can value and they can sell and they can buy and they can trade and they can do stuff with. And in some, in some parts of it are, are silly and and ridiculous. But the thing that strikes me is really interesting about it is is not so much you know I, I, I've sort of gone I'm realizing like I haven't quite explained what an NFT is so like for people who are listening right I mean so technically the NFT is is basically just like a bit of code attached to the blockchain that points to a digital file and says that you I don't want to say own because it's not own right like you you. You have claimed this little link to this piece of content, right? Which feels weird and, and is partially nonsensical. But there's still something interesting in there. And, and there's this idea that you can actually show that you can always show that you had that piece of code and that code is connected to you. And because of that, you can start to do interesting things. And, and, and the most interesting ones to me so far, as I'm sort of thinking about this and exploring this, is in a kind of um, bragging right. Right. And, and it's, it's almost like quantifying hipsterism. And that's really interesting to me. Right. So there's always been this idea, you know, in the digital age. Like Kevin Kelly came up with this idea a while back of this like thousand true fans, right? Like that was his approach to like how do artists make money when music is infinitely available? Um, you need to find a thousand true fans who will purchase everything that, that you, you've bought. And that's great. And like a lot of people have really embraced that and done amazing things with it. And I think it's a really compelling insight and a really important one. But, but the NFT thing takes it to another level, right? So you can be one of the thousand true fans and all you can do is kind of brag about it. But but you don't have anything more that you can do with it. What the NFT space does is it gives you a sort of, you know, a, a token, like literally a, a, a digital token showing that you are that hipster, right? And then allows you to sell it. Which is kind of interesting, which is like, you know. For, for like the true ultimate fans, like they might never sell it because like they always want to show like I was the number one backer. You know, I found this band before you did and I like, I can cryptographically prove it. Um, but other people like, you know, taste change and then maybe a new fan comes in and they want to, they want to have access to that, that token that, that you had. And so suddenly fandom has this really interesting element to it that it didn't have before. And I don't always know if it's good. And some of the incentive structures there might be problematic and might create some really weird incentive structures. And I'm interested in really exploring those. But it is this new kind of scarcity in proof of fandom that I am really, really fascinated by because, you know, when I wrote the original thing about economics of of infinite goods, um you know, I was, I was focused on time and attention as these new scarcities. And I believe that there would be other new scarcities that would come up, but the scarcity of like being able to prove that you're the number one fan <laughs> of someone was not one that had occurred to me. But now that I've seen it is really interesting.
0: It strikes me. it's or I, the one thing that I can't stop, like trying to wrap my head around is the idea that like this scarcity of status doesn't seem to need to require or even care about, and in some respects even encourages like a lack of scarcity of content. Right, right. Like we used to think we had to like limit access to the underlying content, but actually in this world, it's actually the the more it's spread around, the better. And yes, like there's no concern about limiting access to yep. the content itself.
1: And and, and that is a. a- key insight into all of this right and like you know the first place i sort of saw this kind of thinking that sort of woke me up to it was not in the nft space and not in the crypto space but the way that patreon was originally created right and you look at that and that was you know jack conti this musician who was creating these amazing videos and these amazing this amazing music and he was putting it up on youtube and the only way that he could make money from it was by you know You know, letting YouTube put ads on it and taking the pennies that that came from it. And he, you know, he is really, really insightful. And I don't know if you've you've ever spoken to him or paid attention to his thoughts. I I had met Jack many years before he started Patreon and he presented at a conference that I was presenting at and I was just like this guy is worth following. <laughs> like he just had all of these ideas about business models for music that were really compelling and were all based on this idea. Of like, I don't want to lock up my music. I want more people to, to listen to my music. And so I'm going to explore a whole bunch of different business models where the music itself, let people share it. That's how I get more fans. And it was this, you know, going back to these same ideas where it's like, when the content itself is infinite, then it becomes not a commodity that has to be locked up and sold. It becomes a resource. And then in some ways, you know, a way to think of it is it becomes free promotion and you let people share it. They're promoting for you. They're doing advertising for you for free. They're helping you find new fans, a bigger audience. And then the trick is to figure out how do you monetize that? How do you build a business model that is successful under that world? And Jack had always been thinking about this. And so I wasn't surprised when he came up with Patreon, which the idea was like, Set the music free. Let the music go. You're going to find these thousand true fans or more, and they're going to support you, and they're going to support you for a different kind of scarcity. The, the original model of Patreon, Patreon has, has changed somewhat. I thought the original model was even more interesting. Right now, it's basically like, you know, you pay this X amount per month. But the original model was like, every time I release X, you'll pay me Y. So every time I release a song, you agree to pay me $5. And to me, that model was so insightful because you're basically saying the scarcity here is not the music, right? The music can be infinitely available, but before you've created the 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 music, it is scarce, right? The scarcity is getting me to produce new music or new content. And so, if you can get people to pay for that and support you and be able to show like I'm I'm, you know, Jack's big fan uh, or whatever, like that's really, really interesting. And so that was the model of recognizing the scarcity is the creation of new works. But once they're created, they become free advertising to get more people in to support the creation of future new works. And so I thought that was really interesting. And the, the NFT space also sort of has that approach to some extent, which is the content is free and the more widely recognized it is and the more widely embraced it is, the more valuable the NFT is underlying it. And that's, again, like a completely different model, but it goes back to one where the information is more widely shareable and we're not trying to lock it up. We're not trying to hide the information. We're not trying to put, you know, DRM or barriers on it, but we're trying to make it widely available. And that is a much more powerful world in which the, the information flows freely and you're able to build up stuff. And then because of that, the underlying asset, in this case, the, the, the code that is the NFT becomes more valuable. And it's, it's just a really different way of looking at the world
0: and one that I think is a lot more compelling. Well, so in your new project, you're going to be exploring a lot of these ideas. Um, as a way of kind of introducing listeners to it, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own experience so far with NFTs in relation <laughs> to the project that you've just launched.
1: Well, it's, it's been interesting. So, so we're using this platform called Mirror, which is sort of built on this idea of like uh, a more decentralized uh, publishing setup that embraces NFTs. Um, and so, um, some people involved with Mirror had reached out to us originally because people were asking for, you know, they wanted someone who was sort of thoughtful about the space and not just like a pure NFT booster. Cause there are plenty of those to like do a kind of more thoughtful exploration of the economics of NFTs, the legal situation around NFTs and sort of the cultural analysis of NFTs. And this is just exactly kind of what I was starting to think about. And then the folks at mirror were like, Hey, you know, we have a lot of people interested in potentially backing this kind of thing. Would you want to do that? Um, and so, you know, it was interesting. We, we actually spent a long time. I mean, they originally purchased in March. Um, and so we had a very long conversation with them and sort of thought through stuff and, and sort of tried to write up, you know, what would this look like? And while we were doing that mirror, which is a startup, you know, they were, iterating and changing their platform. So like, I think we sort of finally got ready to, we said like, okay, I think we can launch something around May. And then they're like, well, we've completely revamped everything that we've done. So we're like, okay, let's take a step back and rethink about this and think about how do we want to do it? we made some changes and then there was sort of another big change. And so we finally got it launched, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago now, um, finally got to the place of that. And so we're, we're sort of exploring that, um, you know, and, and so there is this learning curve, like anything in the sort of crypto space does involve a learning curve and, and discovering, you know, different weird facets of it that are different than, than what we're used to the way the web works. Um, but, you know, I, I thought that was important in its own right to sort of learn, um, you know, how, how all of this works. Um, and, and so, you know, just to explain the project itself, we basically have, have this, it's a, you know, a crowd it's sort of like a traditional kickstarter to some extent to say we want to write this paper um you know do you want to back it uh but it had a couple of interesting features on top of that which is that well one anyone who backs it gets a piece of a token we created a token td nft for tecter nft um and eventually when the paper itself is created the paper itself will be sold as an nft and any of the proceeds will go to the token holders of it, um so backing the the project might get you some return. I we make no promises that that anything will will come of it, and and it may not. Um, nobody might want that that NFT eventually, or maybe maybe people will value it at ten bucks. You know <laughs> who knows. Um, and um, but then we had we had some other features in there where if you backed at certain levels, you would get access. You would get other NFT. Potentially. So, you know, we had if if you backed us at at one ETH, um, then we had 15 of these protocols, not platforms, uh, NFTs excuse me, um, basically, you know, we thought that would be interesting to people who really liked the original Protocols, Not Platforms paper and wanted to back this as a sort of sequel. Um, and then uh, Mirror implemented this really cool feature, which they had only just launched. And this was part of the delay between uh, with us launching it, which I thought think is a great feature. I think every crowdfunding platform should have. I'm surprised that Kickstarter doesn't, which is the podium feature, which is, you know, for the, the people who back at the, the highest levels, they sort of get their name in lights, the, the top three backers, and then they each get an individual NFT of a, of a graphic showing that they are, um, you know, the, the biggest backers of the project. So it adds this sort of fun, competitive element to, you know, who wants to back at the, at the highest level. um, And, uh, and that really seemed to inspire some people <laughs> to, to back us at, at a decently high level uh, and to, to get up on the podium. And so that was, that was kind of a cool and different, different feature.
0: So Mike, in in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the project itself and what you expect to do in it. I know it's sort of still in the early stages in terms of actually writing and, and producing it, um, sort of what kind of ideas or kind of sense do you have at this point of sort of what you think the paper is going to say, and where are you still looking? Where are you still thinking about in terms of, you know, what you think is going to be informing the project as you go forward?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I've already started doing research on it. I, I'm working on, I'm actually working on a few other papers as well that are sort of all in this space um, and a few other things as well, but it's all connected. So so I've been doing research for all of these different projects around sort of that intersection of, of NFTs and cryptocurrency and scarcity and abundance. Um, and um, basically for the next, you know, uh, you know, for the next few months, at least, I'm still going to be conducting a bunch of interviews and talking to people and getting a bunch of different perspectives—some positive, some negative—and beginning to explore. And sort of out of that, build the kind of thesis um, around what what that paper is, is going to include and what it's going to highlight and how it's going to um, frame all of that. Um, I don't expect this. I, th- you know, like the protocols, not platforms paper. I mean, that took nearly a year to really write and go through and and edit and get a lot of feedback and, and then, uh, rewrite it. Um, I'm sort of expecting a similar kind of timeline. I really expect sometime, you know, middle of next year would be good to get this paper out. Um, I, you know, I want it to be sort of a deeply thoughtful paper. You know, I could rush off something quick about NFTs, but that's not the, the goal for this paper really kind of understanding it deeply and thinking through like, what are the real implications of it? Some of which, you know, my initial thinking is kind of what I was discussing before this idea of like, you know, creating this, this asset class of fandom, um, is really fascinating to me. And I think perhaps the most interesting thing that I've seen so far in the NFT space, um, I think as I explore it more, I'm likely to discover a few other things that I think are interesting and potentially other kinds of scarcities that I think are interesting. And most likely, I'm going to discover things that I think are ridiculous and, 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 you know, just crazy tulip bulb kind of talk. Um, and because there's, there's some of that mixed in. And so, you know, the thing that I'm really trying to parse out of all of this is what is, what is real and what is interesting out of it. And also, like, you know, how does it compare to, you know, copyright law and, you know, and, you know, there, there are all sorts of problems with the copyright system, but it it has made a whole bunch of people really rich. Um, so that's interesting. Does NFT present something that is fair, better, different, worse? I don't know. Um, but I want to explore that. You know, I don't, I don't think there, you know, people have yelled at me saying like, well, you know, they're different. And I was like, yeah, obviously they're different, but like, some of the ways that they're different might be interesting. Some of the ways that they are different might be better and some might be worse. And so I want to explore all of that and really begin to understand, you know, where it goes. It's also a space that's changing really rapidly. Um, and so I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to build that into the paper because, you know, You know, I can, once the paper's done and you go through editing and stuff, like you can get it out, but like, I don't want to have to keep updating it like to the very last minute. Uh, So I'm sort of trying to figure out like, how do you write a paper on this subject that will be timeless enough that it it won't be completely obsolete, you know, two months after it's written. Uh, So I'm still figuring that out, but I I have some ideas and I have sort of uh, the way I usually do these things is kind of, I have a sort of mental thesis and a mental outline and I'm doing interviews to sort of see what fits in, and as as I learn stuff, that will adjust, and eventually that it will become a, a written thesis and a written outline, and I'll sort of keep adjusting it as I write. And so that's that's kind of where it is right now.
0: Well, I know I'll certainly be following it closely. Um, this is a super cool project. I'm a I'm a big fan, and I've been learning a lot from your work in the space already. So thanks so much, and thanks for coming on the show and and sharing all these uh, incredible ideas with us. Mike.
1: Yeah. And thanks. And, and obviously I'm also a huge fan of your work and, and the stuff that you've done and I've been inspired. And, and some of my thinking on NFTs is, is based on, on the things that you've done and the work that you've done too. So, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't short yourself there. <laughs>
0: oh, thanks, man.